his karate lessons might not turn him into a black belt. Hi-ya! And even after band camp, he might not be the greatest musician. But with the 3% annual percentage yield you can earn on a PenFed premium online savings account, your goal of supporting his dreams, thanks for everything, mom and dad, will always be worth it. Apply today at PenFed.org savings. Federally insured by NCUA. $5 minimum to open account. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed. PenFed's got great rates for everyone. When the whole family comes together to watch the game, nobody wants to miss a second of the action to run to the grocery store. With Instacart, you can get all your weekly groceries in as fast as an hour. Less time shopping means more game time. Let's go. Visit instacart.com to get free delivery on your first three orders. Offer valid for a limited time. $10 minimum per order. Additional terms apply. It is December 11th, 2022. I'm Blois Olson. This is Sunday Take on News Talk 830 WCCO. The big news of the last week, which dominated the discussion and will be the topic this week, is $17.6 billion budget surplus. What would you do with $17 billion? Just to put it in perspective, that's about $3,000 per Minnesotan. Put that against local property taxes rising, spending desires in education and healthcare, childcare, other issues, long-term care. Those are the issues we'll discuss this week on Sunday Take. We'll be right back. His karate lessons might not turn him into a black belt. And even after band camp, he might not be the greatest musician. But with the 3% annual percentage yield you can earn on a PenFed premium online savings account, your goal of supporting his dreams, thanks for everything, Mom and Dad, will always be worth it. Apply today at PenFed.org slash savings. Federally insured by NCUA. $5 minimum to open account. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed. PenFed's got great rates for everyone. Selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage, to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is here to help you grow, whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits. Shopify helps you sell everywhere, from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify has got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 15% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash odyssey podcast all lowercase go to shopify.com slash odyssey podcast now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in shopify.com slash odyssey podcast we have two guests this week on sunday take anna mingy the state budget director she's going to talk about what it takes in a little more detail about putting together a state budget how they look at forecasts what kind of data they uh kind of take in frankly when they start the process it's not like they just wake up after the election and decide to 
put together a budget. And then Senator Carla Nelson, she's the current chair of the Senate Tax Committee. She'll be in the minority in the new legislature, but she understands kind of the way in which revenue ties back to the budget. And we'll talk to her. But ultimately, you have to look and start to read between the lines of this to understand the way the session dynamics are going to play out. The House Democrats are going to apparently be a little more progressive or a little more liberal in their spending priorities. This week, four new freshman senators on the DFL side said the Social Security tax cut is still a top priority for them. That was after Governor Walls said, well, maybe we should, you know, kind of means test that tax or or limit it to lower and middle income earners rather than high income earners. Social Security tax repeal was a priority of Democrats, Republicans. It was one of the issues that legislative candidates of both sides said came up at the door a lot. So we'll watch that. The governor also has started to say we got to watch our long term spending, especially if there's a recession. The budget is in structural balance. But that surplus may mean that we have a lot of one time money. And when there's one time money, it really kind of gets divided up amongst these priorities. And those priorities, I think, are going to be education, long-term care, nursing homes, care for our seniors, child care, uh, and then we'll get to the process. But the process starts in January when, by the last day of January, the governor has to submit a budget to the legislature. They'll take a look at that. They may come up with their own budget, or they may go through this process with departments submitting their budgets, et cetera. At the end of the day, pace yourselves. This budget discussion, the big budget discussion, isn't going to happen until after the Easter Passover legislative break. It's just the way in which the legislature works. But as I wrote earlier this week, note that this legislature could get some things done early with federal compliance, using some of the budget surplus from this biennium to meet some immediate needs. And as we look ahead this coming week, look for committees to be named and maybe some commissioners to be named in replacing commissioners who are leaving. When we come back, Anna Mingi, state budget director on the process and the mechanics of putting together a 50 billion dollar state budget. I'm Blois Olson. You're listening to Sunday Take on News Talk 830 WCCO. Why? Why? If you Why? have T-Mobile 5G home internet, you might be hearing this Why? a lot. Why? Every time your internet slows down during the busiest hours. Why? Why? Because your network gives priority to cell phone users. Why? Why? Good question. Why not switch to Cox Internet with two times faster download speeds than T-Mobile 5G home internet during peak hours? Okay. Stop the whys and visit cox.com slash 5G home for details. T-Mobile prioritizes certain T-Mobile phone users over home internet users during times of congestion. We are back on Sunday Take, and my guest is Anna Mingi. She's the state budget director, assistant commissioner in management budget. And this week with the forecast coming out, and as we look at the next session with the budget and the data and uh, information that informed the forecast, where there's places in this budget that we're underspent or places where we forecast or the legislature needs data to determine the next budget. with the governor. Uh, She is probably the one place where you can find it all. And we're going to, I guess, you know, 
sharpen our pencils a little here and learn about the process of putting together and uh, and understanding the state budget. Uh, budget Director Mingy, thanks for joining me. Thanks for voice. I'm happy to be here. So um, let's just start with this. How did you did you grow up dreaming you'd be the state budget director? And what 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 caused you to want to be in this job? And and how long have you been there? So so I grew up. Um, I always knew that public service and government um, was something that was interesting to me based on just some of the interests of my my parents and other members of my family. Um, but I was actually, um, I was pre-med. And then when I took a health policy class in undergrad, I realized I really cared more about um, the policy of healthcare rather than the um, delivery of it. Okay. Um, but so then it started me down a road in health policy and I sort of fell backwards into budgeting when a budget officer role opened up here in the budget division at MMB. Um, and I've spent most of the last eight years in the budget division at MMB, starting as an executive budget officer covering healthcare, then being promoted um, to like the management team and um, taking a brief stint at the Department of Human Services as their chief financial officer before coming um, home to MMB about a year and a half ago. So I've been in this job since um, summer of 2021. Got it. So, um... I imagine, and there's a there's a little mystery around it, even though um, you know it's raw data and real information. I imagine that as you're getting ready for the forecast and as you're working with external experts, there's let's just say there's a lot of inputs or there's a lot of information coming that needs to be synthesized or digested into you know what creates the the forecast and the picture or the projections of putting together a budget, whether you're a family or a business, you look at your revenue sources, you look at your expenses, it, it, it's budgeting, depending on it's, it's basic principles, but it obviously gets more complex. And uh, with the size of the state budget it gets complex. Talk about the weeks and maybe months leading up to the forecast and, and, and how the team works with outside forecasters and internal data to, to get the most accurate forecast you can. It's a great question. You know, we, we're really proud of our forecast and our forecast methodology. We like to brag about uh, Minnesota's mature financial management practices. You know, we, we do two forecasts a year and we forecast for, you know, across four or six years, depending on where you are in the cycle. And, um, and that's not something that every state does. But we also, I think it's notable you know, we have um, a team of like highly qualified economists who forecast our revenue, and then a team of nonpartisan budget analysts and state agency experts who forecast our state spending. Um, and that's, you know, that is not true of every state. And so in the, the months and weeks leading up to the forecast, on the revenue side, our economic analysis division, um, they you know, they put out monthly reports of the revenue that the state collects and are over the course of the year analyzing trends in collections and looking at um, macroeconomic forecasters from our uh, macroeconomic forecast from our contract forecasters. We use IHS as our macroeconomic yep. forecast here. Um, and 
So we're continuing to monitor what we're seeing on the ground here and we are talking to our Department of Revenue for what might be driving those changes and then looking at the macroeconomic projections and that's a continual process. But as we get closer to the forecast, um, the team really starts to build a model of the Minnesota economy. So we have all this data about what we think is going to happen nationally, but then we have to translate it to what does that mean for Minnesota based on the like, historic relationships between nation nationwide trends and then what we experience here. Um, and then they, based on what we think will happen in the economy, forecast out what we think that will mean for state revenues across various tax types and other types of revenue. Um, on the spending side, uh, the budget analysts on my team partner with state agencies, most notably the Departments of Education and Human Services, because that's where most of you know, our state programs that change with the forecast live. Uh, and we, we have meetings with them in the sort of months and weeks leading up to the forecast. One of the first things with the Department of Education, for example, is talking about pupil projections. You know, yeah. What do we, what are we seeing about uh, pupils in our schools? How does that compare to past forecasts? What do we think that will, that means about pupil growth going forward? And once they finalize the pupil model, then it can drive um, all of these separate programs that really depend on how many kids there will there be, but also specifics of the individual service lines. And similarly, at the Department of Human Services, the economists there are monitoring enrollment and spending every single month and um, talking with our team throughout the course of the year. But then um, as we get close to the forecast, they use some of that same macroeconomic data that the MMB forecast team relies on because as you know, our, some of our health and human services spending is counter cyclical with the economy. Um, and so they put together a forecast of like very complicated human services programs because it's not just how many people are enrolling and how much are costs changing and what's changing at the federal level. And then you just spend hours and hours with the MMB team walking through all of the changes and uh, making sure that we agree that we think they're reasonable and that they're the best assumptions we can make. And so you know, there are all these inputs and then the team sort of in the M&B budget and economic analysis divisions really tries to put that together. It's, you know, a lot of Excel spreadsheets and double yep. and triple checking. And, um, and we managed to come out with, with sort of a coherent product on the other end. Um, so let's just take pupil projections. Cause I think that's one of the variations um, of what happened in the last budget cycle and what you're probably going to be trying to figure out in the next budget cycle. Um, that's a place where the projection of number of students was lower and therefore there's some budget savings. Now, what happens to that savings and, um, and, and like a savings in a family or a business, are there certain things that you get to do with those funds or do you have to wait to see what, you know, what the legislature and the governor agreed to do with, you know, those, those excess funds? So in general, in these programs that vary with the forecast, we don't, um, the reason that they're fluctuating is because the state, the, 
the estimate of state spending is driven by estimates of enrollment or utilization. But in the place, for example, with pupils, where we are seeing fewer pupils than we expected, that means that we project we will be sending less to schools. Um, but that we don't have, um, in most cases, the authority to then spend that somewhere else. It's just that the forecast really derives from what we think we'll be sending to schools. And if we're not sending it to schools, then it's just savings that helps contribute to the balance of the general fund. Got it. Okay, so as we get ready to look at the next budget, my guest is Anna Mingi. She's the state budget director here in Minnesota. As you get ready for the next state budget, um, what kind of tools and resources do you use now that you have the forecast and um, and you look at what's ahead? Um, you know, I, I would say like, you know, in, in business, we say, hey, if we think revenue is going to be this. We think these expenses might go up by this. We think we could cut some efficiencies here. What tools do you use to kind of I, I guess, put together the outline or the the kind of skeleton of what the next budget will look like, because obviously this is a massive undertaking and it's not just you um, and it's not just the governor saying, here's what the budget should look like. It's not like, you know, he's putting together his own spreadsheets to compare to yours. What does that process look like? Sure. So we, the budget process for me starts way back in June or July when I start writing instructions to send um, <laughs> state agencies. Um, and we, but it's, it's a challenge because we don't know what the, the forecast will be. Right. And we, we always just like, we can make guesses. We know we ended last session with like what would probably be $12 billion on the bottom line in the budget biennium or 2024 and 25 biennium. So we knew we'd yep. have significant resources in the budget years, but you know, it's, the economy has been volatile in recent years. So it was just our guess. Um, so we, we send instructions. We, we start by talking with the governor's team to say like, what do you want this budget to look like? What do you want to prioritize? And we really lean on um, the governor has published a one Minnesota plan. That's sort of an enterprise wide strategic plan that we use. Um, to drive sort of the core principles of uh, priorities for the budget. And so we draft instructions that we distribute to agencies, you know, and knowing that there is a deadline for submissions, it's actually in statute on October 15th, that these budget requests come from state agencies. And um, so on October 15th, or 17th this year, because the 15th was a Saturday, um, my team, you know, opens up, there's you know, SharePoint and there are yep. hundreds of budget requests from state agencies and um, constitutional officers and yep. sort of every everyone funded from the state budget. And we, we do a lot of prioritization and some of these are items that we've been working on. They've been part of like interagency work groups. And we try to, we start to, categorize them to say what are the what are the things that address xyz goals that we've lined out in our budget instructions um, and the budget team and the governor's office team really dig those agencies to understand 
what they need, you know, what do we need to run government? Yeah. What are they proposing that is in line with the governor's vision? And we start to winnow and categorize. We understand where we have concerns. We um, have meeting after meeting to understand what are the things they want to lift up and make sure are built in. We know there are hot button issues every year. So we yep. have those strategic conversations. And then like part of my job is making sure that like the day after forecast day, we are as like as well positioned as we can be to hit the ground running to say, okay, here's, we started here. Here's structure. Like we know, you know, education is always an issue. And right now, for example, workforce is an issue. And how, what do you want to do on that? And we have advice from a number of state agencies there. And by issue area and slowly we just work through work through it all got it Anamini has been my guest here I know you have a lot of work to do I won't keep you much longer what do you do when the budget's done how do you relax uh, or 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 get yourself out of the spreadsheet when you have some free time I was gonna say when the budget's done we start working on the next forecast but the um <laughs> uh, so I live in um, South Minneapolis and we spent a lot of time walking along Minnehaha Creek and going biking around the lakes. And we have two small kids, so don't have a ton of free time, but we love to get outside and enjoy sort of the resources of, of our neighborhood. Sounds good. Well, appreciate your work. Appreciate the explanation. And I know the listeners of Sunday Day take do too. When we come back, more on the forecast, the politics, the policy, where's Minnesota headed? I'm Blaise Olson. You're listening to Sunday Take on News Talk 830 WCCO. Our final uh, discussion this Sunday morning on Sunday Take is with Senator Carla Nelson. She's from Rochester, uh, and she's been the chair of the tax committee for Republicans, obviously with the majority changing for next session, uh, that her role will change. However, she understands the dynamics of how taxes and how the budget gets put together. And after our conversation with Anna Mingi, the state budget director, I thought it'd be good to have Senator Nelson on to talk about assembling the budget from the legislature's standpoint. So, Senator Nelson, thanks for joining me. Uh, great to be with you, Blois. Good news. Good news on the budget forecast side. So let's just start there. Obviously, $17.6 billion surplus uh, on the forecast. Um you know, immediate reaction, obviously good news, better than a $17.6 billion deficit, that's for sure. Um, and obviously taxes are one of the one of the drivers, is are the drivers of revenue. So just let's just start there, like your reaction and, and where, where you think, you know, from a tax perspective, um, you'll be looking closer as we enter this legislative session. Yes, and, and you're good to recognize that, yes, this money is uh, revenue that's been collected from Minnesotans, and it's pretty clear that um, th there were over-collections over and above what was necessary for our agreed-upon budget. Um, and so I think the first thing going forward, uh, as many of us uh, real well, and just some other um, kind of background information 
when you look at all the different indices, uh, tax indices, you know, many different kinds of taxes, and you look throughout the states, no matter really kind of how you slice and dice it or which taxes you're looking at, Minnesota tends to be in one of the top five, six uh, states as far as we're known as a high tax state. And uh, so I think that's something we have to recognize and and make sure that we move that notch down a little bit uh, so that Minnesota is a more welcoming state, a state that's going to uh, attract more people to come here, stay here, grow a business here, retire here. Um, and, and so I think that's a basic fundamental thing. Um, and also some of the other underlying things to realize are one of the first things that I learned when uh, I was a House member uh, uh, many years ago, uh, first budget session, first thing I learned was you do not spend one-time money for ongoing expenses. So I think it'll be important for us to, first of all, recognize the difference between structural balance and one-time money. That's a good place to start. Let's talk about that because some of the urgent needs um, and some of the details of the forecast show that there's underspending based on pupil counts and demand in healthcare and education. It would seem that based on the campaign trail, based on some things generally agreed upon by Democrats and Republicans, that there may be some needs that, you know, you have more money in the bank. I was explaining this to somebody else and I said, well, if if I have a house project that's going to cost me $10,000 and it only costs me $7,500, I might look at the contractor and say, hey, what can I get for that extra $2,500? And, you know, through the campaign, we talked about whether it was special ed funding, whether it was um, mental health funding in schools, the HHS kind of early surplus from money they thought was going to be spent, this biennium is there. Is there precedent or um, or a history or an example where that kind of pool of money and you look and you say, let's do some stuff quickly because we know property taxes are going up. We know school districts have rising inflation costs too. Is, is there precedent for that or is that just, is it too hard to try to get done uh, at the legislature? Well, well, kind of rephrase it. Is there precedent to do what exactly? To spend money that's kind of left right now that wasn't going to be spent. So for oh, instance, sure. we have under enrollment in schools, right? So how do yes. we use that money that was allocated for education still for education in the near term rather than just waiting to spend it in the next budget? Oh, I see. Yeah. And so that kind of gets to that point, too, about one time and ongoing money. But uh, when it comes to education, it is true that, uh, you know, education is largely driven by the number of students we pay on a per pupil basis. So I think the most important thing and the the thing I hear across the board uh, regarding education and, and, you know, full disclosure, I'm a former education chair and teacher myself. So um, but is that the, the acknowledgement that education is our future and we have to make sure our kids are well prepared for tomorrow, you know, the jobs of tomorrow. And so what I'm uh, on that front, I think we we should make sure we cannot waste. These kids have, in many cases, have two years of lost learning already. And one of the things that's going to linger on, even I think beyond that lost learning, uh, because hopefully with proper interventions, and support those kids can be brought back up to speed. But one of the larger issues that has not maybe received as much attention regarding education and where should we be spending money now, I think is the increase in mental health challenges and needs that our kids have. 
And so I would hope that right away we would get some of the funding for school-linked mental health out into our schools ASAP. It's essential. It's a, it's a life or death thing in many cases. So I do think you, you are correct. There are some of these issues where this money just needs to get um, appropriated and out the door for those things right away. And that would be true in education, particularly in a school-linked mental health. My guest is Senator Carla Nelson. She's a Republican from Rochester. Uh, She's been the chair of the Taxes Committee. And as we talk about the surplus and the budget and what goes into putting it together, let's so let's focus on the the next budget. Um, Obviously, you brought up the distinction between one time money and ongoing spending programs. The governor has um, signaled that he, too, is concerned about ongoing funding and that there might be a lot of one time funding this year. As that kind of, you know, shapes the budget, um, you look at tax policy, uh, tax trends, um, Minnesota has um, a relatively diverse economy compared to other states. However, when we do have a a rise in unemployment, we quickly see that impact on revenue to the state. as you look at a forecast or as you know, you kind of look at the data, not the politics as much, but before we get to the politics, the data or the, the trends, what do you see or what are the things you really look for in this forecast to, to determine like how to prioritize the next budget? Well, uh, one of the trends to look at uh, that I had an indication of, but it was clear in the budget is that we've had a declining birth rate for 14 years or since 2014. And so that declining birth rate has a lot of ramifications when it comes to schools, when it comes to budget, when it comes to our workforce. So I think that's something, uh, again, that we want to uh, look at Uh, hopefully getting more folks to stay in Minnesota and come to Minnesota. But I think the declining birth rate is one thing that we, we must uh, examine uh, regarding those changes. So, all right, we're past January, the house generate, the governor puts out a budget, legislative caucuses put out a budget. What do you think the dynamic is going to be based on knowing the players and knowing the politics of how the budget comes together this year? Obviously, Republicans are going to push back. Um, they're going to be critical of the governor's budget. But the process, the the places where, you know, whether it's um, education or child care funding, things that have statewide significance, what do you what do you see as the priorities and, and how those dynamics come together? Yeah, well, I think one of the big priorities right out of the gate is um, education of members. We have a large influx of new members, both in the Senate and the House. I'm hearing over 30%. So that's one out of three legislators. This is their first experience in just those very simple things. They always joke about finding where the bathrooms are, finding your way around. But more importantly, understanding how government works, how state government works, how state budgeting works. So I think there's going to be a big on, hopefully, uh, by each caucus, uh, by the uh, bodies themselves, a good onboarding experience. And so I think we have a lot of education to do to start with. Um, And then there are some of those just very fundamentals of knowing uh, what uh, our revenue producers are, what our revenue users are, um, how do we mesh those things uh, together and looking at um, the, the, the just the basics of doing that. And then again, that one thing that we must remember is the danger of spending one-time money on ongoing expenses. So I think there's going to be a lot of that 
And then there will be, um, once we get uh, you know, folks kind of up to speed, then there will be, I think the easier part, Blois, will be in determining how to spend that one-time money uh, on those one-time expenses. And we can talk more about what those might be. Um, but then the harder part will be, okay, what about the ongoing budget, our $52 billion plus biennial budget? How are we going to uh, to fund that? And my hope is that you know, everybody can kind of leave those campaign things beside behind in the rearview mirror, especially in the Senate where we have four-year terms. I'm hoping that we can really focus on those things uh, that are going to empower Minnesotans, drive economic growth. And we'll have a lot of discussions about that. What do you think those things that would drive economic growth are? And I know you're very familiar with the bipartisan discussions, agreements, on the idea of eliminating the Social Security tax. <laughs> yes. Um, and now there's some talk about, well, maybe we don't do a full repeal or whatever. What What are the budget implications of just that tax repeal? What's the revenue implication of that? And then where do you see the priorities once you start to look at where the money is, if you can set aside the campaign rhetoric? Sure, sure. Well, I think the first thing I'm so glad you brought that up is the elimination of those taxes on Social Security benefits. That's about a half a billion dollar question. Uh, And now we have um, a 17, 18 billion dollar surplus and a structurally balanced budget out to 2027. So I think it's really the well, there's the politics side of it. But I think uh, if we're talking about empowering people, I think that's one thing that we we should do. And quite frankly, um, just to give you an example today, I have breakfast with a large number of community leaders, uh, both at the local levels, uh, um, labor leaders, uh, and nonpartisan leaders, uh, as I said, in the state and county. And to the person, they all said the same thing. Stop taxing Social Security benefits. It's not a Democrat thing. It's not a Republican thing. It's a senior thing. And it's a way to keep seniors in our state, more seniors in our state. So, you know, we don't know that it will be a net half a billion dollars uh, because we think more people will continue to, to, to retire in Minnesota rather than their accountants saying, you might want to stay here with your heart. But really, if you're interested in uh, your, uh, your children's future and such, you might want to uh, retire in one of those other states. And so I'm very hopeful that that is first and foremost, and it is not Republican, it's not Democrat, it is a senior thing, it's a fairness thing, it's supported by uh, folks all across the board. I am a little concerned, Blois, uh, when I hear kind of this backpedaling, like, well, we can't just eliminate the taxation for social security benefits on everyone. Well, no, yes, we should. Uh, we're one of only 12 states that uh, do that. And interestingly enough, we're surrounded by states uh, who do not tax those social security benefits. And our neighbor to the South just this year has now removed taxation on all retirement income. Think about that. Big sucking sound, I can see people uh, choosing to retire in, in that state. So I'm hopeful going forward for that piece in particular. Should be front and center. You know, it's, it's interesting you say that because I will acknowledge that this is not an issue that I ever heard a lot about until this last summer and fall as I was traveling the state. And I think I was over 25 events, forums, you know, roundtables, whatever you want to call them. And and it did come up. It was one of those things that people said, it's just a basic, simple, like that's an easy thing to do. So, and just um, so I know the math 
uh, as accurately as possible. That 500 million, is that per biennium? Is that per year? Ooh, I'm going to have to check. Typically, okay. those things are for the uh, biennium. Biennium. Okay, so yeah. that's the two-year budget cycle. But I would start- definitely want to confirm that. It's, yeah, even no if it's a billion uh, for the two-year budget cycle, uh, that's something that we should and must do. And I think it will have rewarding and empowering effects, not just on those who choose to stay here, but on the rest of the state. As we wrap up, Senator Nelson, um, where do you see the two or three priorities for spending in the next state budget? Well, there's a couple things. These are pretty universally well-known too. Um, our, our group homes, our disability homes, and our long-term care facilities, I think we all have loved ones, know people who are living uh, in those uh, type of supportive uh, living arrangements. And, you know, they are hemorrhaging. They're hemorrhaging staff. Um, and it's a life or death matter. So, um you know, the Senate was really focused on assuring those up with additional support. I'm hoping that that is at the at the front of the list. Um, and then also knowing, uh, and we talked some about the necessary tax relief, uh, and then also knowing about a lot of the one-time money, you know, infrastructure. Um, our infrastructure is crumbling in many cases, and that is necessary, and it would be a good place for budget surplus, good place for a particularly one-time money. So those are a couple of the areas that I think are critical. And of course, um, education is critical too, but we're going to have to figure out, is it just uh, more money or are there other things we can do as well? Uh, and realizing that we, uh, we, we pay on a per pupil basis and I think strong public schools are important. So we want to make sure that we uh, keep uh, making sure that our kids get great educations, which will involve some changes. Well, Senator Carla Nelson, thanks for joining me on Sunday Take. I know we'll talk throughout the session and understand this process of the budget, which I think more Minnesotans are tuned into knowing that there's the surplus and that we just had a year-long discussion. So thanks for joining me. Thank you, Blois. When it's Sunday at 9 on CCO, it's Sunday Tech. I'm Blois. Catch me Monday at 620 with Vanita Sakar on News Talk 830 WCCO. Until next week.